0: You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Brendan Handsconnect, a programmer at Google who works on machine learning compilation and who's also one of the top contributors to the Rock programming language. A lot of the times, the phrase Google scale is used as a euphemism for having a really big code base, but here we're talking about literal Google scale, things that really happen at Google itself. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, no Red NoRedInc makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredinc.com slash jobs. And now, literal Google scale. All right, Brendan. Yeah, thanks for for joining me on the podcast. Appreciate it. Yeah, great to be on. You had mentioned kind of in passing, like the last time we were talking, and it kind of stuck with me that, because I didn't know this, that... Go, the programming language at Google, was originally kind of hoped to be like maybe a, a C++ replacement. Like it might be fast enough to mean that people wouldn't need to write C++ at Google like all the time or, or nearly as much. But I guess that didn't work out or what's the story there?
1: Yeah. So the original authors of Go, the big thing they were dealing with is seeing how slow and how complex and how, I guess, buggy writing C++ can be, right? Uh-huh. and So it's like from the, the writing side of it, C++ is a monstrous language. It's gotten better in recent years with a number of the more modern changes. Um, and as people say, it's kind of like more than one language now. Oh, interesting. Packaged into one. I haven't heard that, but I, I buy it. Yeah. The uh, language itself is is really has a lot of pain points. I mean, that's the reason why Rust appeared, why Go appeared, why a number of different languages appeared trying to fix core problems that people end up running into when they're using C++. Uh Um, It definitely gives you a lot of control, a lot of power, but it has a lot of foot guns in it, right? That's the easy way to put it. (laughs) When Go was originally being developed, the idea was that they can make this nice new language that can kind of replace a lot of our internal, you know, microservices and functions because we have a million services all talking to each other. And most of them at the time would have been in either C++ or Java because those are two of the biggest languages in Google in general. C++ for anything that needed to be really performant, and Java for everything else that doesn't need that hardcore performance aspect. The authors, when they built Go, were trying to make something that was going to be this way for people to change away from C++. And in reality, as people started using it, you know, because Go has a GC, because Go doesn't have the same level of low-level control, it's using green threads, and there's different trade-offs that come with that. When you look at all of the the trade-offs that go into the making to become this language that's actually very nice to write, it led it to the case that when the different C++ teams saw it and started trying to use it, they went, well, we just made our performance worse, and now we need to add all of these extra servers to do the same thing, so it's not worth switching, plus we're already used to C++, so there's like a huge cost to switch off C++. Uh And so for most teams that already had these big C++ code bases, it just was not meeting the story. On top of that, you know, it doesn't really have the best C or C++ interops. You can't really just half change. That's not really a story that works well with Go. And so as a result, most of the C++ people, like a couple teams would have switched, but most of them just kind of looked at it and said, it just doesn't meet our needs or it's too much effort to switch for gains that we're already used to how C++ works, what we're doing, all of that. Most of those teams did not switch. And we still have tons and tons of C++ at Google. And still a growing number for sure. (laughs) But a lot of Java teams, on the other hand, when seeing Go and seeing how much less verbose it is and how it actually gave them speed gains compared to Java, but they didn't have to switch to C++, a lot of Java teams, and especially new projects that would have been done in Java, are like dying off and disappearing at Google and being replaced instead with a ton and ton and ton of Go code and Go projects. And so Go, which was meant to be this language targeting C++, just really didn't pan out in the way they thought it would, but still ended up making all of this value and making a new language that's super useful, just in a slightly different context than the authors were originally like looking at or intending.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. They aimed really high in terms of performance, didn't quite get there, but they did get there on the removing foot guns and then accidentally along the way, maybe address other pain points that people had with Java. And so it ended up taking off but not in the way that they expected.
1: Yeah. And so definitely a lot of Greenfield projects in Google and new projects end up using Go or things that don't need the max performance. But whenever you start thinking of max performance, it's still, nope, C++, it's, it's the top choice at Google. I know we're occasionally looking at other languages like Rust and whatnot. I've even seen Zig mentioned in an internal doc once. So oh, really? they do regularly scope out and look at different languages. But yeah. currently C++ is what you'll get if you, you say, I, I need to get performance out of my machines.
0: Yeah, because I remember watching the talk, I'm totally blanking on the, the name of it, but it's it's from the, the people who did the big hash map optimization like, that ended up in Abseil. It's called like Swiss Table is the name of the, the hash table.
1: Yeah, all the flat hash map stuff, yep.
0: Yeah, there were like two different talks, I think both at CppCon, yeah, about like high performance hash maps. And what was interesting was just talking about how like, if you can move the needle like 1% or even a fraction of a percent on hash map performance across all the hash maps that get used at Google, that is millions of dollars.
1: I still really like one of the things they said about it, which was like, people regularly come up with faster hash maps and we look at it and debate mixing different things in and whatnot. And generally our answer is, Sure, in your benchmark, it's faster. But when we start looking at how it scales across all of these crazy use cases we have at Google, there's ultimately some trade-off that it doesn't meet that ends up costing more. Like, for example, oh, that uses 1% more memory. Well, memory is actually more expensive than CPU, generally speaking. So there you go. I don't care that yours is faster. You just increased my costs, right? And so there's like this giant bag of trade-offs across so many applications that they're looking at. It's always interesting looking at the different micro benchmarks and what people try to keep pushing the needle forward. And definitely it has still changed and evolved and gotten better over time.
0: This reminds me of a term that you introduced me to, which I had not heard before, which was SWE years. <laughs> Do you want to explain what that is?
1: Yeah, so at Google, we have a metric called a SWE year, which I think is honestly used a bit less now. But basically, when you're looking at a project and trying to evaluate how useful it, it would be, it's often measured in SWE years. So we'd say this project will save five SWE years, but only take me a month to implement.
0: A SWE year being, like SWE being software engineer. like uh, Ah, yeah. yeah.
1: So yeah, SWE year is, it, it's basically how much we pay a software engineer for a year of work, right? That's right. like the, the unit of measure here. They kind of convert everything into that metric. It's like, oh, well, this many CPUs running is worth that many SWE years. And this much memory is worth that many SWE years. And so you now have this way to measure in like, convert everything directly into the amount of time you're spending on it, right? And so I can say, you know, this project will take me a month. So that's one sweet month because it's just me. And then I can yeah. say, well, it's going to save this many CPUs, which equals a sweet year. So now I'm doing one month of work to save Google the cost of paying me for 12 months, right? And so now right. they're <laughs> making these huge returns. That's a 12 to 1 return. And so a lot of projects have this like internal metric when they're measuring, like, especially like compute usage, they'll use sweet years as like this unit of measure to decide how worthwhile a project is. Something that occurred to
0: me is that you don't usually see that type of like very direct comparison, like most software jobs, like usually, on the software side, it's like you're not really thinking about profit, right? Like the difference between how much money comes in and how much money goes out. It's just like, well, all the programmers are like a cost center, we're like R&D, research and development. And then there's a different part of the business that makes the money. And so Performance optimization is usually more, at least in my experience, about UX. Like it's about how does the end user like your thing because it runs fast or not because it runs slowly, (laughs) as opposed to like, this is really all about dollars. And what it reminds me of is salespeople. Like generally speaking, you pay a salesperson a certain amount of money per year so that they will bring in more money to the business than the amount that you pay them for that year. Yep it's kind of like the inverse or like the, I don't know, the converse, something to compliment to a salesperson where it's like, we'll pay you this much money so that we don't have to pay server bills in, you know, (laughs) in this much, that's much larger than how much we pay you.
1: And of course this doesn't map to every project. And I think a lot of people at Google don't ever think about it or see this number, but it is something that like, when you're looking at certain investments, especially for the you know, performance oriented teams or the low level teams that like don't have a good metric to say, oh, yeah, we want to change all of the code across all of Google to use this new thing. Like they need a metric to say, hey, yes, we're doing something good. And it's saving money or being valuable. And so I think a lot of these like large scale changes where you suddenly say, well, we have millions upon millions of lines of code. And when you Change this little thing; it's faster, right? When everything's a string view, suddenly we get rid of all of these accidental copies, and we save all of this memory, right? And it's a clear performance gain, right? Right. And so it's kind of just a way to like connect the dot back in circle, and so so you have like an idea at the beginning of like just how valuable something is, and also it's a like changing needle, right? Oh, you know, a few years back, maybe memory wasn't as expensive, right? A decade a- ago. Versus now memory prices have really shot through the roof. And so now memory might be a bigger concern of like, we need to save on that. And so the the ratio of uh, a gig of RAM to su- a sweet year is, you know, changing. Right. And things of that nature.
0: I wonder, like, given that, a question that naturally comes to my mind is like, if you're at that scale, how do you ever use anything other than like a C++ or something capable of getting that same level of performance? Like how do you ever justify using Java or Go or anything else that can't be optimized to that level because it's just so expensive?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's a valid statement. And I think a, a big part of it is that developing the software and getting things out there is also really important. And C++ sure. is not the best language for developing something fast, for avoiding certain classes of bugs, for designing certain software, right? And so I think that's a big part of the trade-off. And then also, you have to remember that a lot of things are web services, and depending on what you're doing, you're really just IO bound. And so how fast you are IO bound doesn't really matter. It matters a little bit, right? We saved X number of nanoseconds before starting sending out the first byte again to the the next service. There's a good comment by Chandler Carruth, who uh, he regularly gives talks at CppCon and is heavy in our C++ world, but he made a comment of like, Google is really just the protobuf moving company. We take things in one protobuf, and we send it and put it in another protobuf, and we repeat that n times until we get the result we want and send it back to the end user. And you know, so like when you're mostly just moving things around, Go and how it does things is obviously a much easier language yeah. for, for most of those tasks. And so the performance doesn't really matter when you're like, hey, CPU, take the data out of that buffer, and put it in this other buffer for me. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Protobuf
0: being the, like, Google's, like, binary serialization format. Like, for a lot of companies, that would be JSON, right? They'd be the JSON moving company between all their microservices.
1: Protobuf is our equivalent of JSON, for sure.
0: (laughs) I hadn't heard the Protobuf moving company equivalent, but I had heard the sorry, but I I had heard a a similar kind of equivalent version, which is the main thing that Google servers do is serialized and deserialized protobuf. And then occasionally they also do something that's not that, <laughs> which is presumably the main thing the server's job is, which does make me kind of wonder also, like if I were on the optimization team, could I? how many sweet years could I get out of combining two microservices just so they don't have to talk to each other anymore over protobuf? You just get rid of that whole serialization thing. And what, what's the trade-off there? Obviously there's like potentially other scaling needs there, but yeah.
1: Obviously the amount of times you have to serialize and deserialize and reserialize, right? I mean, and that's why there are things like flat buffer that's getting used more, which basically is like we took an array of data and just directly mapped it to try and make all serialization gone. Like even more so, like you lose a lot of the niceties around like versioning and things of that nature but it makes it so that it's basically like a, hey, just mem map this, or, or like, just like, turn this into a struct, right? This is all in the exact right byte format. We don't have to do any parsing, anything. Just consider this pointer, that struct, right? So obviously that helps with parsing, but has all of these other versioning problems and things of that nature that you sure. have to deal with. Of course, at Google, it's, it's helped by the fact that you can, we live in a giant mono repo, right? If I want to change some service from protopuff to flat buffer, right? Mm. I can look at every single place this is used, potentially, and updating them all at once. And so there is no versioning control when I have this giant, you know, scope. Um, and, of course, you have to get the giant CL in. But... The CL? I don't know what that is. Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, that's our equivalent of, like, a PR. It's a change list That's what oh, okay. it stands for. Got it. But, yeah, they're generally something in the range of 200 to 500 lines, and they're, like, our individual chunks of, like, code, with exceptions of giant monster automated changes and things of that nature.
0: I guess you still have to get the deployments right, though, right? Even though the code can change atomically, like servers and clients, for that matter, right, are not atomic. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they, yes. Yeah.
1: Servers, for sure, have rollout, and there's lots of policies around that and lots of testing and things of that nature.
0: No doubt. Yeah, that reminds me of, um. I, I guess, I don't know what the relationship is between these and flat buffers, but I know Kenton Varda, who did uh, ProtoBuff V2, he also did Captain Proto, which was like the serialization format he came up with that, that was the big selling point was you didn't have to parse it because it was, the serialization format was literally the exact same as what was going to be in memory. So you could just call mmap and then there you go. Your data structure is there.
1: Captain Proto is like in between flat buffer and protobuf, much closer to the oh, flat buffer side. But I yeah. think it has some slightly more feature richness to it. But I haven't looked in this in a long time, so I could be off with that.
0: Yeah, I wonder how they deal with pointers. Like there, there must be some sort of like it's just an index and to assume that the, the memory's bit right i mean that you can't just serialize arbitrary pointers that's not going to work
1: yeah of course yeah i think everything would have to be with with indices instead of pointers right
0: okay interesting okay so going back to this idea of like you have all these like really high performance needs in in some cases but in other cases you're sort of like io bound and it's not a big deal i wonder how often like an analysis gets done to figure out well did we change from the one to the other at what point are you like, okay, we started off being like, we got to ship this thing. That's our focus. We're assuming everything's going to be IO bound anyway. So let's just use Java or go or whatever. We don't need to go all the way to C++. And that's true at first, but then at some point the thing gets used more and more and maybe the performance characteristics change, or like you said, maybe the hardware changes, maybe something that was previously cheap is now expensive. Do you know if it ever happens that people are just like, you know what, we got to rewrite this whole thing in C++? For performance,
1: so I definitely know that it has happened and does happen from time to time, but I don't have any like good idea of how often that type of a change ends up getting done. I'd assume most likely, talking about serialization again, they might pull out like part of it that's like the performance heavy part and add an extra serialization and de-serialization. There's your extra microservice that gets branched out to. Because then you just have one small piece that obviously is the very heavy piece. Or, you know, pull it into a C plus C++ library and do CFFI of some sort. It might also happen. But yeah, I don't really have good metrics around that of like how often it ends up happening.
0: Yeah. And I guess as long as you're starting for something like Java or Go, which like in, in the grand scheme of popular programming languages do a lot better than like something like Ruby or Python, maybe you're IO bound there, but you might not be in one of those other languages. I'm reminded of this company i think it was called iron.io if i remember right that did a blog post about how they they migrated a bunch of servers from ruby to go and when they had the ruby servers they had like 30 some odd servers something like that and then after switching to go they only needed two servers to serve the same workload but that's actually not quite true they really only needed one And it wasn't even at capacity, but they thought they should have a backup.
1: So they made it be two instead of one. Made it be two. Yeah, I think I remember saying that quite a long time ago. Yeah, (laughs) it's crazy how much performance difference there can be between different languages and different ways you think about and code a problem. I mean, you see it regularly in lots of companies, right? They start with something that's quick and easy, and then they transform it, right? You look at Facebook, they had PHP, and they were so dependent on PHP that they literally made a VM to run PHP called Hack. Like, you you know, they're just embracing that. Um, And apparently originally it was a compiler. They first made a compiler from PHP to C++ before they made the VM for it. And so like, you know, obviously there's some heavy demand there and so they needed to solve a problem, but like it wasn't reasonable for them to just go and got all the PHP and change it to something else. And like you regularly see this at lots of different companies.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, you, you have to imagine like, Facebook started out as one person and then it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew. And And then at some point, at no point along the way, when you're like a tiny startup trying to grow, does it necessarily make sense to say, hey, let's just stop making new features and like do a big rewrite, right? Like Mm -hmm. almost always, if you're going to, you know, introduce new technology successfully, it it almost always happens incrementally. Not saying 100% of the time, but that's like by far the more common success story. And like to your point, if you don't have a way to do it incrementally, like you had go and C++ interrupt, you know, a story not being ideal, I guess I wouldn't know, but <laughs> that makes it harder. So if you're Facebook and you're like, well, yeah, maybe we're not thrilled with PHP anymore, but like, that's what our whole code base is. And we've got hundred plus people working here and we're, we're like trying to make it, you know, we're competing with MySpace, which back then MySpace was a lot bigger than Facebook in the early days. Yep. I remember that like 2007. Several times the size of Facebook. You know, at that point in time, you're not thinking about like, oh, someday this is really gonna be a technical choice we regret, as much as you're thinking, like, I gotta ship more, I, I gotta make more features. And then yeah, at some I, point you look around, way, you're like, oh, we have millions of lines of PHP code. This is not this is just our thing now.
1: <laughs> yep. A thing that always like saddens me a little bit is like the world and how how it works does not necessarily put that big of an emphasis on performance and on even things working a hundred percent correctly, right? Sure. Like it, it makes sense that like the regular user doesn't necessarily care that much, but I think a lot of things could just be like that tiny bit nicer, where you just it's you don't notice it, and it's it's very convenient. And so like we have so many things that are just so wasteful. But like when you're Twitter or whoever else, and you have a backend if it's slow, well you're getting so much money, and it's better for you to add more features or do X, Y, or the other things, and not care about the servers because so what you're running a thousand servers, ten thousand servers, they're still. You're making so much money that the important thing is to keep users engaged, to keep them active and to keep having them give you more money and like whatever that trade-off is to get money. And so like a lot of times prioritizing just more and more features and more and more things is simply a better time to money trade-off for a lot of companies. Right. Yeah. It isn't until right. you get, it, you know, ridiculous scales that you can have teams that say, hey, what if we change everything in this code base to do this little bit different so that we gain this much cut off these servers or whatever.
0: Right. Yeah. And I mean, another thing that like an unfortunate, just hard fact about reality is that startups are are a very harsh environment. The main thing that startups do like more commonly than what any other any other thing that startups do is go out of business because they ran out of money and cease to exist. That's the most common thing that they do. And so if you're in the minority, the relatively small minority, in fact, of startups that do not go out of business, It's because some combination of things went right and often that you just like just scraped by and had some near misses with death like most startups end up in. And so like when you're in that kind of environment and like constantly about to like run out of money, et cetera, I mean, it's pretty difficult to say, oh, well, why don't we like stop thinking about, you know, users and revenue and growth and whatever else or, or whatever your metric is that you need to like continue surviving and just like focus on this other thing. It's it's hard to justify. So in my mind, the way that, I mean, if we want to get to a world where software runs faster and works better, it's got to be compatible with that. It's got to be something where like new businesses, like startups specifically, are able to make choices where it's like, I am getting software that runs faster and works better, but I don't have to slow down to get it. Or or if I do have to slow down, it's like a temporary thing where it's like, well, there's a learning curve here. Uh, as opposed to like this is just a constant forever tax like every every time i'm trying to ship something new it's just going to take longer that can literally be deadly and like if you if you end up going out of business because of that doesn't really matter how nice your code base was that code base is now in the trash <laughs> So that's the yeah, this,
1: this makes me think of when like a common question people compare go and rust and i think this is that right there is like one of the biggest differences between go and rust is in Go, you could use that in a startup and iterate fast and, and move very quickly and still have all of these niceties. And sure, it's going to be slightly slower. And if you have something that's really CPU bound, it's a problem. Both of these languages have a lot of niceties to them. But Go has a much better like set of features when you're talking about iterating fast and just getting things running. You don't have to be like, oh, no, I don't know how to make the buyer checker accept this, right. right? You're just like, oh, it ended up copying an extra time and I didn't even think about it because you know it's garbage collected and it's dealing with that, <laughs> whatever. like. Right. <laughs> it's it's a different set of trade-offs. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I mean, when we were at No Red Ink thinking about our back end, this was back in like twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, and we're like, we were really happy with Elm on the front end and like you know, we'd introduce that incrementally and it just took over, like everybody wanted to use it for new stuff, and we were like okay, like, let's try to find something similar on the back end. Anything was on the table. It didn't have to be like a functional programming language, even though you know Elm was. I had had a little bit of experience with Rust at some point later on. Uh, so we first we tried Elixir and for various reasons didn't end up deciding to stick with it. Uh, like 2017, I tried out Rust a little bit. And my conclusion was, I like this language, but I don't think this is a good language for our company because it's like the performance benefits that we get They're probably not going to be felt that much like on our back end, like realistically speaking, I mean, they would probably reduce latency somewhat and maybe make honestly it'd be like the main benefit, I guess, would be that we wouldn't have to fiddle with the garbage collector settings, you know, like turn those knobs, which would be nice. But at the end of the day, I mean, that wasn't like the big problem, but it would introduce a big problem, which is how fast we can build stuff and like how easily we can change stuff and how long it takes to change stuff. You have to deal with the borrow checker now. That's a big cost. Like <laughs> there's there's benefits that come with it. But if those benefits are not that relevant. And, and honestly, like I, I do know some people who are using Rust on the back end for their startups. And of the people I know who are doing that, the motivation is not really the performance. It's just looking around at the backend languages out there, and they're like, Rust has the nicest type system. So we're just gonna we're just gonna clone left and right. Any anytime if a problem comes along, we will clone it. Clone yeah that's
1: that's a valid way to look at it for sure i mean i'm really impressed with some of the rust web crates with all the macros they use that somehow make it look a lot closer to python than you'd ever expect it to <laughs> yeah. of course you still hit borrow checker errors and it's very yep. much not python once you hit a borrow checker error. Just <laughs> the raw code and are reading it you're like wow this actually is really readable doesn't seem anything crazy it flows really well i feel like i'm just like i can add a new route with like a little macro and like there's so many different things now that like just get built out much quicker than you'd expect with Rust. It still has all of these pit holes for development that just could right. sink tons and tons of time if you're trying to solve them in the correct Rust way as opposed to just, oh, copy it, move on.
0: <laughs> yeah. And honestly, like, you know, there, there's also just the simple fact of like and, and granted, maybe this is just our code base for rock, but like, I don't know, those compile times, they're they're slow. <laughs> they're not fast maybe if we were building a web application, maybe it wouldn't hit as many, I don't know, pathways in the compiler where it it makes things be slow, but kind of skeptical, but I don't know.
1: I mean, you have to build Tokyo. As long as you have that cache, you'll you'll probably be okay. Your end (laughs) application will probably come together faster. Yeah, there are definitely things I think a web app would be able to avoid that we use that would help it with compilation time, specifically around certain macros and generation we have, right? We have a few crates that just take most of the time, and then there's a giant dependency chain after that, right? Yeah it might not be as bad if you're more collected together in something smaller without using a few features.
0: Right, yeah, could be. I guess at a at a company like Google, I mean, if they're considering like, so we got Go, we've got Java, and then we've got like C++, and those are kind of the options. None of those options are like Ruby, but I actually do remember hearing, and I don't know how true this is anymore, that like Python used to be pretty heavily used at Google, but I don't know if that was ever used for like web apps, or, or actually I don't know what it was used for really. Or if I assume it still is for like data science stuff, probably at a minimum, maybe machine learning. too. Yeah.
1: So I don't know what the breakdown is of Python at Google, but definitely, I mean, it's like, it's still way up there. There's tons of lines of code in it. It's definitely within the top five or top 10, if it's not in the top five, right? So there's tons and tons of code in it. And I'm not sure what that breakdown ends up being because I've, the only Python I've run into Go was this horrid tool called Autotest okay. that was made for integration testing for Chromebooks. And hmm. I was mostly working on a new tool in Go that was written in a logical way, unlike Autotest. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm so fired. Um, <laughs> Autotest, you know, mostly from my experience, was just this painful thing that like built everything in like the most like deeply nested, like, let's overwrite a bunch of variables as we're nesting so that like you couldn't like follow the train of thought. I don't know how people figured it out or wrote it. I'm <laughs> utterly stunned. I always get confused whenever I try to like follow like what is actually happening when I call this function. It's so bad.
0: So build scripts are at least one use for testing <laughs> or at least one use case for Python.
1: Yeah. And I'm not saying that's the common use case, but that's yeah, just yeah. the only thing that I happen to run into. <laughs> Because you work on machine learning, right, as I recall? Um, So yeah, currently the main thing I do is working on a compiler for machine learning. So it's taking your TensorFlow model and getting it running on a TPU. And so now that we have TPUs and phones too, it's like, how can we get it even potentially to compile fast enough you could compile it on device and different things of that nature.
0: Interesting, yeah. Obviously, like that's going to be a very performance-critical environment. Compilers, I I honestly um, am kind of surprised, I don't know, at, at maybe... And like what a small percentage of like time and energy seems to get discussed about compiler performance relative to like all the other compiler topics, if that makes sense. Unlike, for example, a web app, like compilers are pretty much always not IO bound. I mean, it would be, I would love to have a compiler that was IO bound. That would be amazing. <laughs> it, it that ran, would be pretty amazing. It ran as fast as it took to like read the files off disk. Come on, that'd be fantastic. But that's not the world we live in. It's like, you know, I'm always compilers are like the thing that I wait the longest for of all the like different types of software that I use, including web applications, which are like sending bytes across the world.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true.
0: Like the compiler is just sending bytes to and from a couple of millimeters inside my machine. (laughs) So you would think just knowing those two data points that they would be faster, or at least that there would be a lot more discussion of how to make them fast.
1: Yeah, there's definitely theory topics on it, right? You'll see it in research, you'll see some different discussions there. But I, I think the biggest holdback there that that we run into, like most of the time is like, as long as it meets some like basic threshold, people are like, oh, eh, it's kind of slow, but whatever. And so like, it, it has <laughs> this trade off of, you know, to the end user, oh, it took a few extra seconds, that's inconvenient and minorly annoying, but they're so used to it at this point, because so many compilers are just ridiculously slow, that like, there's not yeah. really this expectation of them getting faster. And they care mostly about the end output, right? Was the output running fast? Was it correct? Did I, you know, was I able to develop in the language quickly? Whatever, like these trade-offs, like when you look at what an end user, when they're picking a language, I've never seen on the list of picking a language, oh, this compiles really fast. I mean, rarely, right? People are like C++ compiles (laughs) slow. It's annoying, but you have to deal with it, right? And Rust now is on that list of compiles slow. But like, I think most people, even though they might like put it as like the last bullet point, it's not really the the big deciding factor of like what language they want to use. And so it's not prioritized as much.
0: Now, on the one hand, I agree. I think in practice, that's not something people like consciously think about. But there is some reason that a whole bunch of dynamic languages got really popular in like the 90s and like early 2000s. And then like now they've they've all got like type checkers, but like Ruby, PHP, Python, JavaScript all started out as dynamic languages, all got very, very popular over the span of like a decade. Why? I mean, if they all ended up getting type checkers anyway, like I I don't know that it was like, oh, their design was just so fluid and dynamic and flexible that like you couldn't put a type checker on that thing. Well, they all got type checkers, so apparently not. I, I think, I honestly think it's about the feedback loop. It's just about, and, and uh, also, I guess a thing that people will cite is compared to the static languages of that era, which was like Java, like yep. C Sharp, and like two thousand C plus plus, less verbosity. Sure, that's definitely a thing that people care about a lot. But I think, and like the unsung hero of them is just the feedback loop. It's like your compile time is zero if you're run, if you're using an interpreter. You like, I want to run my program. It's like you got it, boss. We're running. <laughs> <laughs> there's no delay Th- that
1: being said your time to find a bug is often much more than zero without the type system which is why so many of them are getting type systems now Absolutely. like there's so many bugs that just get caught at compile time now totally yeah this makes me think of the the recent trend of all of the uh javascript build tools right <laughs> they've all been changing away from being written in javascript to be written and pick whatever language go rust i think are the two main ones but like yes. Like There was obviously a case where people were used to like, wait, we had this dynamic language and it could be fast. We didn't have to worry about this. But now even JavaScript is either TypeScript to getting compiled or getting compiled to whatever version of old JavaScript to make sure it supports enough browsers and all of these different pieces. And so like, that got slow enough that now they're actually looking at performance and rewriting these tools completely.
0: Right. And I mean, these are, these are literally compilers. Like you know, yeah. Webpack is a compiler. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're right. There, Webpack is a compiler that's like happens to have the same source language and target language. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) yeah, but like it's doing all the same stuff a compiler is doing in terms of like what the operations are, parsing, you know, combining things together. Yeah, yeah. But a thing that surprises me about like going back to where the research is and like what people are focusing on and what I hear being talked about, if I look at like what are the three things that have like really made a substantial difference to like the rock compiler in terms of its performance, like what are the biggest things, aside from like choosing rust so that we could enable a bunch of optimizations and having low overhead in general, top three things I would say would be struct of arrays, Never hear that talked about in compiler language, except by Andrew Kelly.
1: <laughs> yep, it's all the data-oriented side game people who talk. Yeah, about Yeah, right.
0: It's all. It's all. It. It's all games. It's games and Andrew Kelly.
1: <laughs> yep, sounds about right.
0: I don't know of a single like. I haven't looked very hard, to be fair. Like, I, I, I haven't heard of like a paper that talks about like an academic paper about like from people whose nominally their their whole career is like working on compilers. I I just don't hear that talked about. So that's one of three.
1: Yeah, that's very fair.
0: Second one, development backend. You're familiar with the performance graphs here, right? Like going through LLVM versus going straight to machine code. And like that used to be how all compilation was done. Like LLVM hasn't been around since the dawn of time. There was a time when like that was what every compiler did was it spit out machine code, right? Like going all the way back to Fortran. That used to be the norm. At some point, a lot of, especially like systems level languages, either got like LLVM or got something else that was like, maybe not an extra compilation step, but maybe you're paying for that on startup, like a VM or something like that. Like very few languages. I think Go is the only one that I can think of, like a top 20 popularity language today. I guess I should say that that came out in the past 15 years, maybe, that only compiles straight to machine code. That And, and guess what? Go is, is known to have fast
1: compile times. What's crazy. 16 now, isn't it? crazy It's now older than 15 years. It's been around since 2006. Oh really? I thought it was 09. Oh, I guess it was
0: publicly released 09, but maybe it was used internally before then. Yeah, I think
1: 2006 is when it was first like being developed. so oh wow yeah. might be a more reasonable number. But, okay: uh, Yeah, at least that's what I recall. I could be off.
0: Well, I mean it, it, it did start at Google, so <laughs> it makes sense that it would be used internally first. That's such an enormous part of like at least for the rock compiler like and i know we're not the only ones using LLVM for code generation or, or having you know the option of that it's like just doing like like rust it's case in point like how old is rust how many millions and millions of dollars have gone into rust development how is it that we have multiple development backends granted not all of which are finished but the wasm one is already at, at LLVM parity we're just like some people like <laughs> we're not we're not like none of us ha- have been like working on like top 20 languages, like super popular, we're not experts, we're like relatively new. To I think you probably have the most professional compiler experience because you literally work on a compiler at Google.
1: Yeah, very different because it's machine learning compilers. But yeah, I mean, this is the reason if you ever listened to Chris Lattner's talk on MLIR, their new thing, right? Multi-level IR or machine learning or whatever you want to pick. You like, I think multi-level is the official name of it, yeah. right? And that's most of what I live in actually uh, nowadays. One of the big things about it is, like, it finally made a bunch of changes that, like, people have, like, all of the, a lot of gripes about LLVM. It's like, oh, it can't do these in parallel. It can't take advantage of this. It has all of these problems when converting between certain formats. And like, so many things, like, LLVM has a lot of croft that if someone was willing to cut it and rebuild it based on, like, what we know now, it would be way faster no doubt about it, but like, it just is such a giant code base and it does its job really well when you care yeah. about the final end result being optimized and being able to run, not anywhere, but a pretty wide variety of places. Right, And so it's just, it's just a hard like trade-off of like, again, where's the money coming that like cares about compilation times? And like, does that care about yeah. optimizations or compilation times more? Right. But, but like when
0: I, when I see like when Rust comes out with new releases, periodically they'll talk about various performance improvements, but it seems like none of them are that. It seems like nobody's, there's no initiative that I've heard of to like give Rust a straight to machine code backend, which is like obviously the fastest. You can't do faster than that.
1: What about a uh, crane lift?
0: I mean, crane lift I mean, is it's like, it's not
1: straight, but it's.
0: Right. It's it's like one step removed or something like that. That's a step in the right direction. I would take it. The last I checked, it was like somebody made a fork of the Rust compiler that uses Crane lift and it's like, yeah, it works. And then I don't know, that was like a couple of years ago. What's happening on that? Like you know, there's obviously yeah, there's some there's some fair. blocker where they couldn't just merge it. But again, like, why is that not the priority? That seems like that would be a, you know, it's, it's not all the way to machine code, but it's
1: certainly, it would be a lot better. For sure, especially in dev builds where you care about just how fast does it compile, right? It's like, yeah. I want to get my type checking and borrow checking to make sure that I don't have any bugs. And then I just want it to be assembly.
0: Which brings me to the third big optimization that we've seen, which is linking. And linking is something that, okay, granted, we have like our own, we can cheat, right? Because we have these like special things going on. But the way that we can cheat also applies largely to rust in the sense that the way that we're able to cheat is like we call it for those who aren't familiar with this it's called surgical linking and it's basically this idea of like we know certain things about the like precompiled binary because we're like responsible for building it and so we can just sort of like go through and only make the linking updates we need to make as opposed to like doing arbitrary linking like most languages do but if you're a rust program you also know certain things about that like most rust programs are not doing CFFI most rust programs are just it's like almost all the crates are almost all rust so for every crate in your dependency that's pure rust and not doing any CFFI you're in the same boat that we are in the sense that you're like yeah I I know I made all of this I, I know how it's it's laid out I know like I can do pre-work and cache things and like not have to redo all that linking every time and like linking is another thing that's like Pretty slow. (laughs) It's like a. Yeah. It it really, really shows up on the flame graph, but it doesn't have to if you're like actually optimizing that. So, I don't hear like when I hear about people talking about Rust performance, I don't hear about them talking about these things. I don't hear like let's do some structive arrays optimizations to how stuff is represented in the canonical IR or type checking, or let's let's do a dev backend or let's let's do our own linking.
1: I, I think a lot of the big details there are around like two main factors. One, this information is not exactly the most like just out there. Like, Sure, you can look at a game dev talk and see what they talk about and then say, how can I apply that to my compiler or whatnot? But if yeah. you're just a random compiler author, you may very well not be watching game dev talks about destructive arrays and then saying, oh, I want this in my compiler, right? <laughs> and sure. so there's obviously that gap right there. And like with that, of course, a lot of compilers are already built. And changing destructive arrays is very different than thinking about and writing a compiler with destructive arrays in mind. True.
0: We did make that change and granted our code base is not nearly as big as some of these other languages for sure. So, but I I guess that's and maybe that's the thing that surprises me is like, why isn't there more interest in the or, or apparent interest is my perception in these topics.
1: Yeah. And I think that follows my other point is I don't think there are many people that are willing or like that are interested enough to really want to dig into these low level details to figure out what works. Mm. Like, yes, there are people that care about performance, especially of their end application. And, you know, Rust is someone's end application. But like when it comes to like the linker, right, there's a lot of nitty gritty, annoying details and undocumented things and making sure that it always works. And you're not going to have all of these edge cases and bugs that you're going to have to deal with to make a new linker. And I guess if you're only targeting Linux and it's only Elf, it's relatively easy. But when you go to, you know, Mac, they have terrible documentation. When you go to Windows, the format's different again. And like, you know, there's lots of other cases of like, oh, someone wants to run this on embedded. Oh, that's linked totally different. We have to support that too. And it's like, there's just so many different cases and pieces you have to think about and like lots of nitty gritty details and documentation diving that I think a lot of people are simply not interested in. It's like, even if you care about performance, that's not exactly the most accessible performance task to begin working on and to dig into. That's
0: totally fair. And maybe that's the answer is just that it's like, it's hard. And so like, maybe people are aware of it, they just they just sort of rule it out because they're like, well, even though the, the performance benefits would be huge, it sounds too difficult. It could be both also. I mean, maybe people just feel like, I don't know, linking, linking is what it is.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if, if you were to go to Rust and say, we really want to make faster compile times for like the linking stuff that takes way too long, where do you start? Like you could start and just make an ELF only linker that targets only things that Rust generates and then someone links in C and it's broken. And you have to figure out <laughs> how to deal with that. The fact that C can do whatever it wants, even if Rust has certain guarantees about what code's going to get generated. You have lots of problems like that. And then you have, oh, well, we want to really speed up the release linking time, because that's really, really the slow part. Mm-hmm. But also we want LTO. And so now you have to figure out how to link LTO and call LLVM while linking, because I think LTO you know does some of that final combination while linking and make that still be fast. Or like do the LTO without LLVM, and that's a whole ginormous <laughs> can of worms how do you start with there? It's just a a whole like ordeal that really needs like a giant organization to like just get started and have enough resources to really build and like keep up with LLVM.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess like on the one hand, I totally agree with all of that. Like that makes sense. I'm not saying it's easy, but I guess it's more that like, I see much more ambitious projects being taken on all the time, but with much, at least from my perspective, I don't know. It seems like less upside. Like, I mean, for example, Chrome making a browser, even back in 2008, that's like a, that's a huge undertaking. You know what you're getting yourself into. You know, there's going to be tons of edge cases, tons of underspecified, like behaviors that like should work according to a spec, but actually because Internet Explorer did it this way, you have to try and do it that way too, just to, so the websites won't break. Like there's just, it's just a linkers to the power of 20. Like it's just, just astronomical pile of that stuff. Yeah. I, I
1: totally agree there for sure. No doubt. Yeah.
0: But they did it. And and now it's the most popular browser. Yeah, I I guess like maybe I'm just uh, uh, unreasonably surprised by the average like willingness to take on projects like that. Because like, yeah, sometimes they are really hard, but sometimes that's the only way to get the really big benefit.
1: And it's not like there aren't people that are trying, right? Mold is a new linker that's very clearly targeting things like this. Zig is building their macOS development linker. Yep. Then of course we have the surgical linker, which is much, much more limited in scope. But right. again, is when you're talking about a Linux executable, currently the the speed is basically the speed to flush a m map to disk, right? Yeah,
0: it actually is IO bound. <laughs> like which is wild. I mean, that's like that's amazing.
1: I mean it makes sense. It takes an application, it copies some bytes on the end, and then updates a few bytes and says flush it to disk, right? It's Right. Really like the the final step is super minimal.
0: But I mean, hey, kudos to you for making it exist cuz like it is super minimal, but we're not the only programming language that could be doing that that way. Yeah, for sure. Definitely true. <laughs> But like we're we're the only one that is as far as I know.
1: Yeah, I mean, especially when you're thinking of development builds and things like that, a lot of languages could say, "Hey, let's make like when we compile the first time, take all of those core annoying dependencies that take the linker forever to find and make and get together, you know, your libc's and everything, your start and all this other stuff, and make a mini executable. And as long as certain constraints hold true, that mini executable shouldn't need to change. And so you could theoretically do some sort of surgical-like linking to it.
0: Exactly. And I I think Rust is one such language. Like, it's the, like, Rust knows exactly where all the CFFI is happening and knows exactly which symbols need to be resolved. So yeah, just do that in one earlier step. And then from there on, you can just patch it. Yeah. Yeah, Because you know all the other bytes that you're putting in. In theory, I mean, it's not fundamentally different from what we're doing. It's interesting to just to just kind of take a step back sometimes and, and think about like all the different ways that like software can be improved and like all the different techniques that are currently being explored and the, and like sometimes finding some that aren't being explored or, or seem to be underexplored, I guess.
1: A lot of it is also target dependent, right? Like when you start to make a specific problem and say, this is what I want to solve, the distance you can go to be better and faster when you really target something is utterly like wild, right? (laughs) Yeah. You go from this like general problem and saying, oh, we're going to make something nice and convenient and general solution. And instead say, no, 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 I want to solve this one problem right here and make it as good as I can. There's a world of difference of how much more performance you can get out of uh, something.
0: Yeah. If something is really broad it's even more impressive when you do manage to get something that solves it for that many things case in point hash maps at google like they're used in so many different ways but if you can somehow manage to make something that's actually faster like across the board or like close enough to it that's just like the multiplier effect
1: is absolutely enormous yeah for sure when you can take those low-level data structures and really just tweak them in the right ways that suddenly you have a ton of performance gains. It's, it's crazy what you get out of it. And of course, you need scale for that to do anything useful, right? If we went to Rock and tweaked all of our hash maps to be the most performance thing <laughs> possible for Rock, I mean, there'd probably be a noticeable difference, right? You know, you compile 1% faster or something, but it's right. probably going to be in that less than 5%. You know, you'd get more just running PGO on the compiler.
0: It's detectable, but it's not something that like anyone would notice unless you like show them the measurements, right? Like they wouldn't perceive it. It's like detectable, but not perceptible, maybe.
1: (laughs) So circling back to the surgical linker, right? When I was testing the surgical linker, I was using Hyperfine. And I had the hardest time figuring out how to properly test it because it is just IO-bound and you have so much like Linux caching and all these other things. (laughs) And so like it was bimodally distributed. Actually, originally when I was first testing it, it had four different modes that it was being split across. And eventually with talking to the people that work on Hyperfine, which is a benchmarking tool, like a performance benchmarking tool, I like finally like reduce the test case down enough that I can be like, Oh, yeah, here's a way to run it where you can just get the raw results if you're like trying to look at the numbers. But it's just kind of interesting of like, how complicated even like a simple piece of software can be sometimes. It's like, Oh, yeah, this has four different ways it can possibly run. And why is it slow over there versus over here? You know, the systems are complex.
0: The wildest example of this that I know, there's a talk uh, it was some Strange Loop a number of years ago. The title of the talk is Performance Matters.
1: Yeah, by uh, Emery Berger, I think. <laughs>
0: and like the example that he gave was he w- he ran a benchmark on his machine and he gave it to like a grad student to reproduce. And the grad student ran it. I, I want to say it was on the same machine. They were both like SSH'd in. It was the same actual machine and consistently got very different results. And I was like, what? How is that possible? And how could we get... And it was like the opposite result. It was like X is faster than Y for one of them and Y was faster than X for the other one, something like that. And it turned out to be that literally it was because they were SSH'd in under different accounts, that means they had different home directories. Home directories are in your environment variables. Environment variables are in memory. And that was enough. Like just the delta in the size of the environment variables was enough to, to change like how the memory was laid out
1: and like put one or the other over the edge. Totally, totally bonkers. I agree. Just totally insane to think about, uh, especially when you think about it, it's like, well, I was performance me- measuring something. Could this be a larger effect that I need to deal with? And, and then you get other crazy things like uh, this is one of the stories I really love, like internally in Google, we have, of course, enough scale that you run into bad CPUs. And so we had like the case of, hey, this test if it happens to run only on this one core, it works. But if it runs on multiple cores in the CPU, it breaks. And it happened that one of the cores, its encryption module was broken in a way that it could encrypt and decrypt anything that it like, like it could encrypt and decrypt its own data. And it also could encrypt data from the other cores, but anything it encrypted, the other cores couldn't decrypt because it had a <laughs> tiny bug in how it did it. And so it's like, when you get to like the skill, you have other things of like, never thought about that as a problem but like who knows what types of issues it could cause of like why is this computer not working and so well that one core over there you see whenever it happens to do the encryption operation it's wrong
0: <laughs> so do you, how do you solve that do you i mean i one option is you just throw that cpu with the trash and put in a new one but but i assuming you can't do that for some reason do you just like pin to one core or something like that i'm just like try to avoid having these operations (laughs) around that core? Like, what do you even do there?
1: Pinning to one core wouldn't be a good solution in this case, because if it happens to be that one broken core, when you save the data to disk, you still have the problem of like, here's data that's encrypted wrong, right? right? (laughs) I mean, at Google scale, the big thing is just like noticing and I think tossing the hardware essentially or like whatever warranties, et cetera, right? And so it's like adding things like little instrumentation into applications to notice these weird quirks when like there's certain failures happening. That's not a problem that I would want to think about, especially when you're like, oh, what if I happen to get that one consumer laptop that is raw? Yeah. How many sweet hours did it
0: take to even find that one, I wonder? <laughs> Probably a lot more than the cost of just throwing out the processor and getting a new one, as it turned out. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, who would guess that that's yeah, the problem? Yeah, that's, that's for
1: sure. Chrome OS, when I worked there, they we did a lot of end-to-end testing, of course, and there was regularly things of like, Oh, this thing failed on this device finally. And so, you know, we've been running these tests and they're failing and we're trying to figure out why. And it's, Oh, it's just this one device happens to have like, have this thing broken now. And it's, you know, these little types of things that like, as a suite looking at your dashboard, like, why is this test flaky? I just want to solve my flaky test. And it's like, Oh no, it's just this one piece of hardware in the lab is aged and broken now. And it's, (laughs) Problems that you just don't even like think about that suddenly are cause lots of pain and irks and you know your commit queue is super flaky and so many scale problems that do exist too in that sort of uh, uh, environment.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I got to say, like, of all the things we've talked about, like the consistent theme is like these are problems that you have at Google or these are characteristics you have at Google, and you just don't have to think about those same types of things at that level <laughs> in like smaller organizations.
1: Anything, when you scale up to enough numbers, there's going to be the odd thing out or the slightly broken thing or whatever else, right? Like just scale it up enough. We can't be perfectly consistent, even if CPUs are 99.9% the same, or even if when you, you scale up, right, like performance matters, there's just so many different pieces that suddenly matter when you have the case of Google where it's just... Basically a giant server farm with a few people that (laughs) twiddle around on it occasionally
0: and occasionally something other than serializing deserializing protobuf happens This, is, yes, this is really cool. I, I feel like I learned a lot about like a lot of things I didn't know about before. So yeah, I, I really appreciate your
1: uh, sharing all this. This is really cool. Yeah, I always love talking about performance and these type of things. It's definitely one of my like hobbies essentially is how can I make this run faster? Uh, like what can I twiddle with? It's something I like digging into and Yes. Having fun with. Yeah, me too.
0: Awesome, man. Well, yeah, thanks so much for, uh, for coming on the podcast. This is fun.
1: Yeah, this has been a really good time. Thanks for uh, hosting.